Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Through his detailed analyses of a number of different approaches, not just to moral theory, but to virtue ethics in particular, ranging throughout Western history, Alistair McIntyre points out in After Virtue, chapter 14, that there are some competing rival accounts of the virtues, and that it's not simply having different labels or recognizing different virtues and vices. The understanding of what a virtue is, is a point of disagreement as well, sometimes not quite realized as such, but McIntyre brings that out by providing these differing accounts of the virtues. So then that raises another problem. Is there any sort of unity that can be brought to virtue ethics? And McIntyre says that there is, but it's going to be a complex notion. So he tells us that in his account, there's going to be three stages in the logical development of the concept of virtue, which have to be identified in order if the core conception of a virtue is to be understood, and that each of these stages has its own conceptual background. What are these three stages? Well, he talks about one that requires an account of what I call a practice, which is what we're gonna talk about here. The second, an account of what I've already characterized as the narrative order of a single human life, which he's gonna talk about in the next chapter. And then the third, an account of a good deal fuller than I've given up to now, but what constitutes a moral tradition talked about in the next chapter and the chapters following that. So he wants to focus here just on this notion of practice, which turns out to be very important for understanding the virtues. And he tells us two things. So he points out that in the different accounts of the virtues, whether Homeric or Aristotelian or others, there are well-defined human practices, or he says well-marked areas of social practices in which one would excel. So for example, Achilles succeeds in the war or in games, Penelope in sustaining a household, giving counsel in the assembly, Nestor does that. If you know your Iliad and Odyssey, you understand the references there. And then he talks about Aristotle as well. And Aristotle has sort of a broader, more unified account than Homer does, which McIntyre is largely endorsing. And so practices turn out to be, in large respect, what the virtues are going to bear upon. He does tell us that he wants to add two caveats. So we're going to look at those and then we're going to jump right into the analysis of practice. Practices. What are these two caveats? He says the first is to point out that I'm not saying that virtues are only exercised in the course of what I'm calling practices. So that's a very important point. Virtue is closely connected with practice. And indeed, in order to make sense of the concept of virtue in McIntyre's account, practice turns out to be essential. But that doesn't mean that virtues are only exercised in the course of engaging in practices. And you know, why would that be the case? Well, consider some of the things that he says about examples of practices. Engaging in sports drills, like throwing a ball and catching it, is not a practice according to McIntyre, whereas the game of football is a practice, right? And we could say, well, what about a scrimmage then? Well, you know, scrimmage would actually fall on, on this side, even though it's not a game played for 
records or anything like that. It could be understood as an integral part of the playing football later on. And indeed, the throwing the ball back and forth or engaging in any other sorts of drills, those are practicing, but those are not practices the way McIntyre calls it. And virtue could apply to, to any of those. You could throw a ball back and forth in a bullying way. Throw it to somebody and say, hey, butterfingers, you suck. Well, that would be unvirtuous in some respect. The other thing that he says is that, and this is very important to get across, so I want to super stress this. I want to warn, I will be using the word practice in a specially defined way, which does not completely agree with current ordinary usage, including my own previous use of the term. So McIntyre is making practice into a technical term of virtue ethics. Now, he's not saying that it's totally disconnected from our ordinary usage or even usage in philosophy. He's just saying, we got to be careful here. Here's what I have in mind by a practice. So he's going to give us the definition here. This will be refined in later literature, but we're only going to stick with what he's saying in After Virtue, assuming that one is only looking at this account. So what is a practice? Here's how it runs in the text, and we're going to come back to each of these points in time. By a practice, I am going to mean any coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity through which goods internal to that form of activity are realized in the course of trying to achieve those standards of excellence, which are appropriate to and partially definitive of that form of activity with the result that human powers to achieve excellence and human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. So that is quite a mouthful. That's quite a paragraph in a single sentence, worthy indeed of Augustine or Cicero, but it encapsulates everything that McIntyre wants this notion to include. So let's take a look at each of these parts, and then we're going to take a look at the, the internal goods a little bit more closely because he provides us with a fuller account of that. So a coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity. So activity as such is not what a practice is. Not everything is going to be a practice. It's got to be some socially established activity, and the bar is not particularly high for that. That could include the private languages of twins or little traditions that are carried out within a family that are actually meaningful because there you've got something that is socially established. But notice what else he says. Coherent, complex. Not everything will function as a practice in that respect either. So think about the thing that you see in old movies when people are bored and sitting in a hotel room, they've got a hat, the private eyes do this, and they're throwing cards from a deck of cards into the hat, right? Is that a McIntyrean practice? I don't think he would say that it is, even though it is socially established and that it becomes a trope. Is it coherent? I suppose there's a certain coherence to it. It's not complex. And it could fit into a larger practice of, say, entertaining oneself, but I don't think that it's a practice by itself. So complex, coherent, 
cooperative is another thing. That doesn't mean that it, that it rules out competition. So let's think, for example, of one of the cases that he brings up. The game of football does involve competition, right? You don't have a game if you don't have competing teams. And indeed, you may even have competition within the same team. For example, uh, we're talking about American football here. The wide receivers, there could be five to six of them on a given team, and they will compete with each other to see who can actually get the most time on the field, who can be the first string, who can get the ball passed to them the most often. So they're not just competing against the opposite team, but perhaps against their own teammates. But all of this in a larger sense is cooperative. There is a set of rules governing it. You can't just do anything that you like. And if you watch American football, you know, for example, that while in the past, helmet to helmet contact in tackling somebody was not only a-okay, but by some coaches actually encouraged. Now that we know that concussions result from that and other injuries, you can't even lead with a, with a helmet in tackling somebody because you might damage the, the rest of their body. That's not allowed. And, and players do violate that. And then those players are penalized and indeed their team is penalized. Another thing that shows that it's cooperative. So activity, internal goods. We're going to come to that in a moment. Suffice it to say, internal goods are goods that are internal to the practice of that activity. And so they can't be realized in other ways, except in certain other cases. Then we have standards of excellence. And McIntyre is going to discuss this at considerable length. This is going to turn out to be very important. There are standards of excellence to anything that is going to count as a practice for McIntyre. So even fishing, you know, like cooperative fishing on a fishing boat, there are some standards there. You can't do it in whatever way you want. You can't say, well, uh, today we're not going to put the nets out for the fish. We're just going to dress up in the nets and pretend that we're fish and flop around on the deck. No, no, you could do that, but that is violating the standards of excellence, right? And tearing the nets would probably be a, a problem, you know, because you didn't repair them properly or scrutinize them. So there are standards of excellence involved. McIntyre, by the way, loves the example of fishing boats. And he uses it quite a bit in After Virtue and in other things. So that is a key idea. And the standards of excellence, he says, are appropriate to and partially definitive of that form of activity. So they're not just any standards of excellence applied from on high. They are appropriate to that kind of activity. And he says they are partially definitive of that form of activity. They tell you what it is to do that practice. So McIntyre would say, with, with some of the things that we're going to count as practices, you can't just do whatever you like and claim that you're doing that practice. Let's go on. There's a longer thing that he talks about here. He says that with the result that human powers to achieve excellence and human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. So we have two key things there that are closely connected together. Human powers, capacities, abilities to achieve excellence. That could involve like learning a skill. And human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. So the skill, the means, whatever it happens to be, that is connected to some sort of end or good. And both of these are not simply taken for granted as static once and for all. They are being systematically extended over the course of the practice. This may not happen in every single moment. It may not happen even in any particular era. But if we look at practices over time, they are getting more and more full. They are getting better. McIntyre says they can also go into decline as well. 
one of the examples that we have will illustrate that. So each of these is important. Let's look now at internal goods. What does he mean by internal goods? He says, there's two kinds of goods achieved in a practice. On the one hand, there are goods externally and contingently attached to that practice and to other practices by the accidents of social circumstances. So in the case of the, the child who he bribes into playing chess, candy. Kids love candy, right? In the case of adults, goods such as prestige, status, and money. And he says, there's always alternative ways for achieving such goods, and their achievement is never to be had only by engaging in a particular kind of practice. So if I'm engaging in the practice of medicine and I'm doing so to be a big shot or to have a place in the country club or to make a ton of money or to dominate people and boss them around, you don't have to go into medicine to do those sorts of things. As a matter of fact, if you focus too much on those sorts of things, those external goods, it's debatable whether bossing people around is such as an external good, but we could think of it as power or authority, you're not gonna be a good doctor. This goes, by the way, all the way back to Plato's Republic public in which there's a wonderful discussion in Republic Book One of the practitioner and the craft or the type of knowledge that they're involved in and whether the goal of that is to exercise authority or to make money or whether it's to benefit the thing of the craft. For example, medicine, if you're not actually helping patients, Something went wrong there, right? If you're not producing health, which is the distinctive good of medicine. You could also say, you know, understanding the human body, things along those lines, which might be a benefit both to the doctor and to the, the patient. Internal goods are different. They can, as he says, only be realized in the course of that practice. So he says, we can specify them in terms of that practice or other things of that sort and by means of example from uh, those sorts of practices. So you can only get the goods internal, for example, to chess by actually playing chess or engaging in similar practices. Great example of this is, so you, you like chess and you become very good at it. You are developing within that practice. You're developing both the capacities, you know, of thinking several moves ahead, strategic thinking, and you're also developing the distinctive goods involved in that, which could be like fair play. Well, you can transfer that to other games. Some other games may not be particularly good candidates. I would say checkers, probably not that much. Backgammon, again, probably not that much because chance intervenes so, so much. Maybe they're a different class. Go, on the other hand, you could move from chess to go and it would take you know, some adjustment, but you'd be using a lot of the same sort of capacities and developing the same sorts of internal goods. So these internal goods are quite often excellences that can only be realized within that practice. You can't cheat your way there. Another prime example of this that McIntyre doesn't talk about in this chapter, but fits in very well and he talks about elsewhere is practicing a musical instrument. To be able to play, for example, the violin, which requires a considerable investment of time. If any of you have ever heard a child first or an adult first learning violin, it sounds God awful, doesn't it? for quite a time. And there's a lot of refinement and skill that's needed. And there are little cheats that you can do, like, you know, you can put something that's like a fretboard on the thing so you know where to put your fingers. Sooner or later, you gotta take those off. And you can't, as, as we would say in another form of music, fake the funk. You can only do that at a very beginner level 
and you can't do that as we move on up. So internal goods can only be realized within that or similar practices. They are different from external goods. The other thing that he says that's particularly important here is that internal goods can actually only be identified or recognized by the experience of participating in the practice in question. Those who lack the relevant experience are incompetent thereby as judges of internal goods. Now, we would want to understand this rather broadly. Does that mean that I cannot actually understand the goods of playing American football unless you happen to have played American football, say, on your own as kids on the playground or in gym class or actually on a team? I don't think we want to go quite so far because perhaps spectating is also part of the practice in this case. In the, my own case, of course, I, I could say that I, I do have enough experience in playing American football to recognize what's going on, you know, because I, I did that same thing with soccer or fencing or, you know, various martial arts or track. <laughs> shot put. But I, I also benefited from having had a very extensive physical ed curriculum when I was younger, right? Not everybody could say that sort of thing. And when we look at other examples, we may have trouble with this as well. But this is what McIntyre is saying, that at least to some degree, we can only recognize and identify these goods through engaging in the practice. And this is something quite true. Beginners often don't really understand what the point of what they're doing is, the big point. They get caught on what we might call intermediary ends and they get very obsessed with those and they don't see the bigger picture ends. Now, let's talk for a brief moment about some of the examples of practices that McIntyre talks about. He loves the example of chess and he gives us the example of a child who you're trying to teach chess. Much of the, you know, it's quite similar to the experience that I had with my grandfather, except I wasn't getting candy in the process. So you bribe a kid to play chess and, and you give them candy, whether they win or lose, and then you give them more candy if they do win. So now they've got an incentive to win. Are they going to play fair or are they going to cheat? Sometimes when my grandpa would be thinking about the move, I'd like make noise to distract him. That would be a form of cheating, right? And if you really want to beat somebody in chess and win fair and square, as we say, you can't do that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, you have to focus on getting better and better at the game itself. So I read books and I never got particularly good, but I did play a good bit of chess in elementary and middle and high school. I had a friend who used to beat me all the time because he was, he was just a much better chess player than I was, a greater strategic thinker. And eventually the child recognizes that if they want to get good at chess, it can't be for candy. It can't be just for winning. They can't cheat. They have to accept the standards of excellence of the practice. So that's a good one. Another one that he brings out that he develops over the course of a page or so, portrait painting. He says that the successful portrait painter is able to achieve many goods, which are in the sense just defined external to the practice of portrait painting, fame, wealth, social status, even a measure of power and influence at courts. But those are not to be confused with the goods that are internal to the practice. What are the goods internal to the practice? He says that the internal goods are those which result from an extended attempt to show how Wittgenstein's dictum, the human body is the best picture of the human soul, might be made to become true by teaching us to regard the picture on our wall as the object itself in a quite new way. And then he says that, you know, what is misleading about Wittgenstein's dictum is the truth in George Orwell's thesis, at 50 everyone has the face he deserves. But then he says this, 
What painters from Giotto to Rembrandt learned to show was how the face at any age may be revealed as the face that the subject of a portrait deserves. This is, by the way, is why we could have a book like the portrait of Gray, right? Blanking on his name by Oscar Wilde. The notion is that when you're actually painting the physiognomy, something more than just the material is coming through and you're depicting it in a medium. That is a set of internal goods. A certain kind of truth is available there. And cheaters or people who don't develop their talents adequately are not going to be able to realize that good. And then McIntyre has this long discussion about what's going on from medieval paintings of icons to naturalism to later French painting of aristocratic faces in the 19th century, what's going on in Rembrandt. And he says that there is, first of all, the excellence of the products, both the excellence in performance by the painters and that of each portrait itself. So that excellence, that is an internal good. And then he says that we can also, you know, frame this in other ways as well. And there can be rise and decline in this tradition. He also says that what the artist discovers within the pursuit of excellence in portrait painting is the good of a certain kind of life. That life may not constitute the whole of life for someone who is a painter by a long way, or it may for a period, Gauguin-like, absorb him at the expense of everything else. But it is the painter's living out of a greater or lesser part of his life as a painter that is the second kind of internal good to painting. So we have the production product itself, and then we have a certain kind of life that's being realized in it. That's something that's there in portrait painting. We've talked quite a bit about football as a game, so I'm going to skip over that. McIntyre also talks about farming as a practice as well. And he says that simply planting turnips, I don't know if you're into turnips. If I was going to plant just one crop, it certainly wouldn't be that. But just planting one crop is not actually farming. There are a whole set of things that go into the practice of farming, and many people are engaged in that. A good question to ask ourselves, would agribusiness actually be a practice? From McIntyre's perspective, probably not. Probably it would, it would not qualify as a practice. He also talks about architecture. And here he says something kind of interesting, maybe a little bit debatable. I leave this to you to, to think about it. He says that bricklaying is not a practice. I'm not entirely sold on that because I have so many friends and family in the trades. I think about my Uncle Scott, who is a master drywaller before he eventually became an iron worker. And some of the things that he was able to do with drywall, which were just amazing. <laughs> You know, I think that could actually qualify as a practice. And I would have conversations with him and he would talk with satisfaction of finding the solution to this particular problem posed by the need to curve this in such and such a way. I would say that could probably qualify as a practice. But even more so, what McIntyre is calling architecture is a practice. There's all these other things that are brought under it. By the way, the word architecton in Greek that we get architect from means master builder, the person who has the arche, the rule, the determination of all of the other skills beneath them. And so they are the one who have the master plan and they oversee the process. So a contractor or a builder would also be engaged in practices like that. And there are some determinate internal goods to that. When it's done just for money, just for prestige, just to be the first in the market, not a practice or a practice that's not being done well, you could say. Then finally, McIntyre says something much more general about making and sustaining communities. 
He says that in the ancient and medieval worlds, the creation and sustaining of human communities, of households, cities, nations, is generally taken to be a practice in the sense in which I've defined it. So the range of practices is going to be quite wide. Arts, sciences, games, politics in the Aristotelian sense, the making and sustaining of family life all fall under the concept. So we see that this is quite a robust and complex notion. And again, I want to reiterate, internal goods, absolutely central to practices. So are standards of excellence. So is the idea that human conceptions of the ends and goods, as well as the capacities or means to develop them, are systematically extended by engaging in the practice. And this is part of what learning a practice does for an individual. And we can talk about doing this also as a continual process by which a practice goes goes on as a part of a tradition. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.